Hello, and welcome to Expected Value, the podcast that goes inside the sports analytics world. I'm Paul Carr from True Media Networks, and our guest this week is Mark Simon, Senior Research Analyst at Sports Info Solutions, or SIS, a Pennsylvania-based company that collects, analyzes, and delivers sports data primarily for baseball and football. One of the things SIS is best known for is baseball defensive metrics, particularly defensive runs saved, and their Fielding Bible Awards, and that's what Mark is on to talk about. Mark is one of the most passionate baseball people I know. He's been in defensive metrics for as long as I can remember. He joined Sports Info Solutions early last year after 16 years in ESPN's research department, where he and I were colleagues for a decade, and he spent eight years working specifically on Baseball Tonight. Mark is one of a dozen voters for the Fielding Bible Awards, which were announced last week. And while they may not have the cachet or obviously the history of gold gloves, I'd say they're generally a better measure of defensive excellence. In our conversation, Mark and I will talk about how he got into baseball, his path to ESPN and what he did there, communicating data to former players, advice for people looking to advance in the sports media and analytics industries, metrics he considers when voting for the Fielding Bible Awards, a few of his toughest votes, and his favorite final World Series out. You can follow Mark on Twitter at Mark A. Simon Says. One note that Mark and I recorded this before the Gold Glove Awards were handed out on Sunday, so we obviously didn't address the winners of those. Now, without further ado, here's the Expected Value Conversation with Mark Simon. We are joined now on Expected Value by Mark Simon, Senior Research Analyst at Sports Info Solutions. Mark, welcome to the show. Let's start just by providing some background on who you are and what you do. Let's go all the way back to sort of the beginning. Where did you grow up and how did you get into baseball originally? I grew up in the Upper East Side of Manhattan on 80th Street, uh, just off of 3rd Avenue. I grew up with uh, parents who encouraged uh, a couple of things. One was reading, uh, another was uh, math and good academics. And I discovered when I was 10 or 11 and I got two hits my entire Little League season uh, <laughs> that playing was not the way to uh, go about sports for me. That as somewhat of a, a bit of a, a klutzy, not fully coordinated person, uh, that it was best to find other routes and through the academic side uh, and reading and math and all of the other things, uh, I got very into baseball. I was given a couple of books at a young age. One was Baseball's 100 Best Players. The other was This State in Mets History. Uh, I gravitated more towards that one. I found that I liked uh, organized things, which then, when I was eight, made me what I think was the youngest reader of the Bill James Baseball Abstract, <laughs> uh, which I pronounced abscart at the time because i was eight years old and i liked i didn't understand the math i didn't understand that if you put two numbers next to each other like in a formula that that meant you multiply them i thought they just did some sort of magic to change into something different but there were a couple of things that were understandable he had something called the value approximation method where he would give points to players for different accomplishments that they had over the course of the season and then he had charts which were essentially similar to the kinds of charts that I would grow up uh, to create later uh, when I work at the different places that I've worked uh, that showed things like, okay, why did this team blow a five-game lead in the division? Or what was the story behind uh, what happened in the middle of the season for this pitcher? And I found that I liked that sort of thing. 
Then uh, flash forward, high school, college, uh, I wanted to become a journalist. And I got into the journalistic uh, side of sports, both play-by-play broadcasting and print. Went to work for the Trenton Times and then uh, moved on. And I can explain in greater depth, if you like, moved on to ESPN after six and a half years. And then after nearly uh, 16 years at ESPN, went to my current position at Sports Info Solutions, where my title is Senior Research Analyst, but I do a lot of different things. So let's talk about the ESPN time a little bit, since that was the longest running job, and I think we kind of made your name in the baseball community. What does a researcher do? You worked on Baseball Tonight, you worked on a lot of shows and digital stuff. What, generally speaking, did you do as a researcher at ESPN? So to walk you through my career path there, I started as a temp. And uh, what happened was I had seen uh, Jason Stark's column on useless information, sent a submission after the Indians rallied from a 12-0 deficit uh, against the Mariners. And the submission was uh, that it was the biggest blown lead since Charlie Brown blew a 50-0 lead with two outs in the ninth inning uh, for Peppermint Patty's team and beamed her while she was selling popcorn. Uh, Jason liked it. It ran uh, on ESPN.com. And from that, I wrote Jason and said, look, can I just get the name of a person who would hire people to work on baseball tonight? Miraculously, total luck, he wrote back and he gave me a name. Uh, The name that he gave me was Judson Birch, who was the producer of the show at the time. I wrote Judson Birch. He said, it's not me. It's this guy, Craig Wax, who was uh, eventually uh, our boss. I wrote Craig Wax, and then six months later, I was sitting in ESPN in Bristol in an empty uh, conference room discussing why Keith Hernandez should be in the Hall of Fame. Flash forward, that gets you a temp job at ESPN. Mm -hmm. Uh, The initial thing for that temp job was printing out articles and player biographies. And uh, one of the tips that I give to people uh, when they're pursuing jobs is that if you have kind of more skill than what the current job in the case, don't be shy about showing that skill. So I went uh, very aggressive in writing and trying to be active in helping the game broadcasters. And, and I would send them, here are 10 key stats to watch tonight that I would look up from uh, different sports reference sites that existed at the time. I did that for two years and I did college basketball in the winter and then moved on to baseball tonight where I got to work on uh, what was the best show on television at the time. An hour a night, two shows a night, five, six, six, seven days a week. The researcher's job is to be the information expert of the show behind the scenes. You're helping the producer. You're helping the on-air talent answer questions. You're making sure that everything that appears on the show is correct. Uh, You're helping with the graphics that run during the show. You're helping with the fonts that run across the bottom of the show. You might help with the bottom line. Your job is to be the person who knows everything that's going on so that when people have questions and then when people want to know things about baseball, they come to you. So you have to deal with a lot of different on-air talent, anchors, analysts, etc. We always talk on this show a lot. Communication is so important. The ability to communicate numbers to people and storylines and things like that. What's an example of a maybe a challenging situation you had in explaining stats to a former player? When we turn the show to have more of a sabermetric and analytic kind of feel to it, that was 2009, 2010, somewhere in there. Uh, the challenge was to take people that were used to traditional numbers and information, and this guy's batting 300 in his last 15 games, and turn it into something 
that is a little bit more advanced. And the challenges that you run into is that the players and the the other people on the show aren't familiar with that stuff. Uh, so you have to educate them. So a good example of this, I'll, I'll present a, a kind of a contrasting picture here. We had a show where we wanted to break down two pitchers, and I don't remember who they were, uh, using FIP, uh, which now I think is a stat that is understood by the younger baseball fan as being somewhat of an ERA equivalent. It's something that gives you a more true picture of how the pitcher is actually doing. And I remember the challenge of trying to present that to Rick Sutcliffe and Jamie Moyer sitting in our green room so that they, when this was presented on the air, so that they wouldn't mock it or laugh at it, that they would understand what it was. And I said to them at the time, I said, all this is, is this. Forget the acronym. The acronym just makes things complicated. You know ERA. That's great. Let's just think of this as an additional piece of information that will help you uh, rather than an acronym that you're not going to understand. And let's take two pictures. Here's picture one. Here are his strikeouts, his walks, and his home runs. Here's pitcher two. Here are his strikeouts, his walks, and his home runs. Who's the better pitcher? And when they looked at it like that, it opened their eyes uh, a bit. It took away the intimidation factor of the statistic. And they were able to understand, okay, I'm just trying to figure out which uh, pitcher is better using these stats instead of earned runs and innings pitched. And they went on the air, and I remember Rick Sutcliffe talked about something to the effect of this statistic tells me uh, the things that my pitching coach told me I had to be most aware of, my strikeouts, my walks, and my home runs. And I said, well, that's perfect. That's taking old school, when Rick Sutcliffe was introduced to his pitching coach 40-something years ago, mm -hmm. and new school, this statistic. It was a nice way to be able to blend the old and the new. Contrast that with the newer analysts that ESPN was, was getting at the time, Doug Glanville, Aaron Boone, Mark Mulder. Uh, those are three in particular that were very open-minded. And I remember uh, the first words that Aaron Boone said in a Baseball Tonight meeting were, what's the sample size? And I was like, <laughs> whoa, that's a completely different comment that any player has made in here in the last six, seven years. And I showed... Aaron was open to being shown articles of things like trying to evaluate defense and how does that work? And he wanted to know. And he made some judgments. He said, some of this stuff I like and some of this stuff I don't. I remember he was he didn't feel that that we were able to accurately capture how well Chase Utley turned double plays. That was mm -hmm. like his big sticking point that he couldn't get past that as far as the advanced metrics for that go. But he liked it when it came to uh, trying to compare someone like Jeter to Adam Everett, who at the time was a very mm -hmm. good fielder who wasn't getting recognized. So that's that's the challenge that you deal with uh, with athletes, and you just have to find ways to overcome it. You pointed out a good comment that Carlos Beltran made recently when talking about this sort of stuff. He said, if you call metrics information instead of analytics, it, it makes more sense to a lot of people, right? Yeah, I think it does. I think analytics has a connotation to it of academics to an extent. Mm -hmm. And I think people get scared that they think, oh, I have to have a graduate level of education to be able to understand this stuff. When no, it's, it's just 
I, I go back to your show from two weeks ago where, where Asme talked about answering questions. All you're mm-hmm. trying to do with these, these statistics are figure things out. In Rick Sutcliffe and Jamie Moyer's case, we were trying to figure out who's the better pitcher. Is this guy getting uh, jobbed by his defense? In the case of, uh, a field, of Derek Jeter and Adam Everett, who's the better fielder? You're starting with a question and you're approaching it that way. And then you just collect information. The information may be new and different from what you're used to collecting information-wise, but it's, it's helpful. And it's something that's going to allow you to do my favorite thing, which is tell the story. Yep, agreed. Let's see. So last year, you left ESPN for Sports Info Solutions, where you're obviously still heavily involved in baseball. So tell me just kind of a summary of what's your, what's your role like now at SIS. Sure. Quick sprint through my, the end of my ESPN time. Mm-hmm. Uh, after I worked on baseball tonight, I spent about six years uh, working on social media and working on a blog that our group had, the, the stats and information group. I edited and I sent a lot of tweets. I helped take a Twitter from zero to a million and a half, which was a pretty good accomplishment. Yeah. Left ESPN, uh, came to Sports Info Solutions in February of 2018. My role here is varied, and they are very good here about playing to your strengths and figuring out what you can do and finding things that will work for that. I run their Twitter, but I also uh, produce game notes. Uh, We have a couple of broadcast clients, uh, including uh, one for whom I'm producing for a former old school kind of player, Kirk Gibson for Fox Sports Detroit. Mm -hmm. And I do game notes for them. We do game notes for the Giants. We do uh, some game note work for uh, SNY as well, which is pretty cool. I offer career guidance to our seasonal employees. I have a series of talks that I give uh, offering career guidance to people that want to work in sports, like a four-part series uh, that I do for them. I write for The Athletic. I write for our company's blog. I write a stat of the week, and I write a newsletter that uh, help write a newsletter that goes to the clients that we serve. We serve uh, more than two-thirds of the major league teams, a couple of NFL teams, too. We provide them analytics, an analytic platform on which they can uh, view our data. We've been collecting, I think, since 2002. Defensive run save began in 2003. That's our main stat. And I do a lot of things that involve presenting information. Uh, that's been uh, kind of a theme of my job here. So you mentioned the job tips that you provide to a lot of the uh, seasonal employees. As you're someone kind of like me who has more of a journalism background than a data science background, what are a couple of the key things that you will tell someone with our sort of skills who are looking to break in or move up in the industry? So number one, uh, going back to the Jason Stark story, uh, is I always tell people to take the shot. Uh, Don't be shy about reaching out to people in the industry and corresponding with them. A little kindness goes a long way. Proof that you are, uh, uh, I guess, legitimate goes a long way. And the proof comes in being really familiar with the person that you're reaching out to and uh, studying them pretty carefully. You don't necessarily have to aim for the highest levels. But if you get people at at kind of the midpoints, uh, I find that people tend to be very welcoming talking about their careers. Uh, So that's one Two is that the communication of the information is as important as the information itself. Uh, And that goes back to the Carlos Beltran comment, that you have to be able to present it, whether it be in a written form or whether it be uh, orally or whether it be with pictures uh, and graphics, uh, which we're starting to get into. It's not easy. I find that 
people run into the same sets of mistakes that they tend to overdo it uh, on certain things. And I, I try to be helpful in that regard. But those are my uh, two big things are one, uh, don't be shy about taking the shot. And two, the communication of information is extremely important. Communication is an interesting thing because for maybe people like us who kind of major in a communication sort, it's a little bit easier. I think someone said, I think on the show, that sometimes when you're a data science type person, you can tend to get so bogged down in the model itself and explaining maybe the gritty details that you lose sight of that story and really like answering the question in the first place. Kind of like you yep. said, uh, Ritz Sutcliffe doesn't care about how FIP is calculated in the literal sense, like what is the formula? But if you tell him, you know, it's walks, homers, and strikeouts, he's like, oh, yeah, this is exactly yep. what you know, my pitching coach said. Yeah, components seem to work better than the sum. Here's the, I'm going to get to the sum, but let me explain the components that go right. into it. And just a couple of common things that I see are, I think that when you're trying to correspond to an athlete, you have to, you have to be able to do it quickly and you have to be able to do right. it with short bits, whether it's talking to them for 15 seconds or a paragraph. Uh, right. I see a lot of long paragraphs. I see a lot of decimal points. And I think uh, going back to the Rick Sutcliffe's, the Rick Sutcliffe's of the world and the, even the Doug Glanville's of the world, it's not necessarily relevant that it's 59.42, right. uh, just that it's around 60 is the, an important thing to know for them. It, gives, yep. it kind of gives them a framework and it, over, it simplifies it in a way that, that people can get. So let's move toward the Fielding Bible Awards, which Sports Info Solutions announced last week. Before getting into the details, one of the things that you've been interested in as long as I've known you, and I, I can remember at least, is defensive stats and analysis. When and why or how did that start for you? So I always look for ways to differentiate uh, a little bit. And I guess that's another tip that I would give to someone that's younger. Mm -hmm. And I noticed that in the mid to late 2000s, that this was starting to become a thing, that defensive evaluation was important. This company, uh, BIS, uh, SIS, came to ESPN and did a very comprehensive presentation. And there were two researchers in the meeting. And I walked out of the meeting saying to myself, I need to learn this stuff, but I need to kind of be on top of it. And the more I learned, the more I found that it was interesting. And the more that I found that I was establishing myself as someone who understood it when not a lot of people were necessarily gravitating to it. I compare it to uh, another interest that uh, common bond that you and I have, Division three sports. Hmm. Uh, Division three sports is not necessarily a highly recognized thing in college sports. Division one is uh, an FBS or certainly where it's at. Division right. three, people know Mount Union football, but that's about mm -hmm. it. I wrote freelance uh, for a Division three website uh, for a long time. It was a very popular thing. You and I have both broadcast uh, prominent Division three yep. sporting events. Uh, it's the same concept except applied to something that's a little bit bigger, baseball. Uh, so I found it interesting, and I found that I just, I liked watching, uh, I had always watched defense and appreciated it before, and I was always taught to appreciate Keith Hernandez and Ozzie Smith. Uh, <laughs> now this was just a different way of looking at it. So defensive run saves you referenced earlier, that's kind of the gold standard stat that SIS is known for, primarily at least. Can you give me the rough overview of kind of how is that calculated, what, what that number does for you? Defensive run saved is uh, position dependent, uh, different criteria for each position. And they are, using the idea of talking about components before, the factors that are most important to success at that position. 
at every position, the most important thing that's key to defensive success is turning batted balls into outs, whether they're hit on the ground, hit in the air, bunted, uh, however they're fielded. So that's, that's one. For catchers, base-stealing deterrence is another, and blocking pitches and framing pitches is another. For first and third base, how effectively do you defend bunts? How effectively do you handle double plays? How well do you, as a first baseman, handle throws in the dirt? Second base and shortstop uh, double plays. Are you someone who turns double plays when the opportunity comes to you a lot or not often? Uh, In the outfield, things like uh, throwing, uh, deterring base runners again, and also things as simple as home run robberies. Uh, We give a little spike to any player that robs a home run because you're literally saving runs. There are a lot of other things that, that come into play in little bits and pieces. Cutting off a ball in the gap, comes into play it's a small piece but it's a piece nonetheless uh we have video scouts who watch every game they chart many 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 different things from where uh, the ball is hit and how hard it's hit to whether the fielder made a good fielding play or a defensive misplay maybe it's something that wasn't necessarily in the box score think of it as an advanced form of scorekeeping if you were to mm-hmm. keep score and add a lot more components to it so there are a lot of factors that go into it. The most important one by far is were you able to turn batted balls that were hit in an area where you had a chance to make a play uh, into outs? SIS made an announcement this week about a change coming to the DRS stat. What can you tell us about what's on the way there? Sure, this is going to be pretty cool. One of the laments about defensive stats for individual players is that there was not a way to track the performance based on where the player was playing. For example, a ground ball hit up the middle had essentially the same value whether the second baseman was standing close to the ball or Mm -hmm. whether he was standing far away. We've been able to now, I guess, essentially add in that you now, that does matter, that uh, we can measure whether someone is good at fielding something that's close to them or they're far away from. So you're taking essentially positioning out of the mix and you're just measuring fielder skill. This is announced in a blog that we did at sportsinfosolutionsblog.com, a larger article in the 2020 Bill James Handbook, and uh, many more articles still to come uh, on the subject. It's a great development. Uh, I can tell you that it, it greatly enhanced the value of a couple of players Matt Chapman, most notably, uh, went uh, nearly doubled uh, in defensive run saves because he was getting penalized essentially for balls that he couldn't reach because he was playing on the third base line. He wasn't being penalized for those balls uh, as much in the new system, and he was being rewarded for those incredible plays that he was making um, essentially from foul territory because uh, he plays kind of a unique version of third base, uh, and he gets uh, rewarded for that. And deservedly so. And it changes it changes the way you look at some players, certainly. All right. On to the Fielding Bible Awards themselves. So this is the 14th season they've been handed out. One for each position plus a multi-position award. There are 12 voters this year, and you do the points MVP style. So 10 for first, 9 for second, all the way down to 1 for 10th. So I'm a pretty serious baseball fan, and I think I have a general sense of who's who are the better defensive players at a position. Going to the detail that the voters do of ranking them one through 10 would be extremely difficult for me. So first start me with what is your general protocol for going about voting and ranking the guys at a position? 
Okay, it's so hard. It yeah. really is. Uh, and I, I give credit to Peter Gammons and Rob Nyer and our owner, John Dewan and Bill Janes and the people and Chris Singleton of the SPN and the people that really take it uh, very seriously because it is a painstaking process and trying mm-hmm. to figure out who the eighth best left fielder is. Uh, <laughs> that, that's where you, you get kind of, you put your hands on your head and you're just like, ugh. But sure. uh, but we do it. Okay. In terms of the process, I, I generally had certain rules when it came to looking at the numbers where I factor certain things. I, I factor defensive run saves. We have a defensive run save that we provide to uh, teams as well that, that we uh, have presented at, at conferences and such. Uh, so I'm looking at both of those. I'm looking at their good fielding plays and their misplays and whether or not they're making a lot of mistakes relative to others at their positions. I try to blend the two together, and then I go based on what I've seen over the course of the season, and I do try to follow it really closely. And from there, uh, I try really, 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 really hard to get the top three right at each spot, where I feel like I've, I've got an extremely well-studied ballot uh, in the top three spots. And then four through ten, I'm still trying really hard, but if I have a debate between the two guys, I come up with a tiebreaker, whether it's, okay, I want a guy, who a catcher who can uh, frame pitches. So if they're, if they're basically even in my book, I'm going to go with the guy who frames better. And then I eventually get to 10. It's really hard. Yeah. If you ever want to try it, try it for one position. And then I think after 15 or 20 minutes, you'll be ready to stop. <laughs> yeah, it's an impressive amount of work to go to that yeah. level of detail. Uh, I want to ask about shortstop. That was the voting that looked the most interesting to me. So Nick Ahmed won the Fielding Bible Award. Also yep. only had two first place votes, which was not the most. He's the only guy that won a Fielding Bible Award for whom you did not vote, did not vote first overall. You had Javier yep. Baez number one. So let's start with Baez. Why pick Baez? And it's worth at least pointing out, he wasn't even a gold glove finalist and we know the shortcomings of gold gloves, et cetera. But for you, why buy as number one at shortstop? So with this new metric, I'm not necessarily going to get into the specifics, but sure. I can tell you that he did really well in the newer version of DRS, and he does really well in private versions. And I think I got into the the fanciness with which he plays. Yeah, the and style. He, yeah, he has style, and that nece- that shouldn't necessarily count, but maybe that was psychologically kind of in my head a little bit. Uh, mm-hmm. But also, his if I remember right, too, his ratio of really good plays to misplays was better than Ahmed's, I believe. And mm-hmm. I felt like that uh, counted for something. Uh, I, I wrote in The Athletic that there were two positions that I thought should just be a tie just to make it a little easier on everybody. And shortstop is one of them. Uh, there were four elite shortstops in the National League this year. Those two guys were one. I have no problem that Ahmed won at all. So the other finalist was yep. Paul DeYoung, a gold glove finalist, that is. Paul DeYoung was ahead of Baez as a finalist. Why do you think that he gets the kind of praise on the gold glove front? And to be fair, he's fifth in the Fielding Bible Award, so it's not like you're saying he's bad. But what do you think makes him a little more appealing on the gold glove front? That stunned me, and I, I'm guessing that the uh, SDI, which will be out by the time people hear this, the uh, sabermetric defensive index, that some of the other stats 
have De Young over Baez uh, because that was somewhat unexpected. And I do think that De Young is really good. Uh, he is in particular good at what I call the shuffle to the left and make the play uh, on ground balls that were hit towards the the middle uh, and such. Uh, so that one that one caught me off guard. Uh, it's defensive evaluation is really tricky. You can both look mm-hmm. at. I think you can have two metrics look at the same sets of numbers, and you might get a little bit different results. And I I just think uh, that <laughs> I think that he's really good. I don't know why Baez didn't get through. Maybe there are, there are people in baseball that were voting for the Gold Gloves that don't like the flair with which he mm-hmm. plays. I don't know. Mm-hmm. So center field, you said, was one of your toughest categories. Lorenzo Cain and Victor Robles at the top. How do you compare those two? Yeah, that's a challenging one. They're basically even, and they're completely different. Uh, Lorenzo Cain is really a go-back, sprint-and-get-em kind of guy uh, who can go over the fence and pull down five home runs this year, which tied the record in the time that we've been tracking, which is since 2004. And Victor Robles, as you saw in the postseason, makes very nice plays, and he also has a cannon arm. He had the most arm runs saved of any player in baseball. He had a lot of what we call unaided assists. And to try to judge between them is challenging. Robles was two runs saved better, but to me that's essentially a wash. I think there I might have gone veteran over rookie, and I followed the Brewers pretty closely this year, and I've seen a good amount of Lorenzo Cain, so I was, uh, I'm was i always impressed by how well he plays center field. So I, I picked him. Uh, by now, you'll know who won the gold glove, which would be interesting. Again, that one could have been a tie. And one other category I thought was really interesting is catcher because there's so much that goes into so many different things and some of it doesn't go into other positions. So I'll just look at some of the gold glove finalists and how they fared sort of. So JT Realmuto, I think broadly speaking, again, this is from kind of a serious baseball fan perspective, but not necessarily one who's hardcore into defensive metrics. I feel like Realmuto is kind of generally considered maybe the best defensive catcher. He's good at throwing guys out, decent at pitch framing, things like that. Austin Hedges, I think, has a reputation as an excellent pitch framer, maybe the best. And then Roberto Perez, who won the FBA award. My sense is that he's pretty good. I couldn't necessarily tell you why, but I know he's considered a good defensive catcher. So talk me through the catcher voting and how you came to that conclusion. This is my favorite of the awards. I think that Roberto Perez uh, won it because he's really good at two things. And two things that intuitively you might think are kind of hard to be both uh, good at both. Uh, one was pitch framing. Uh, he was, by our measures this year, top two, top three, top four to uh, hedges. And in total, like, depends. If you look at it on a full season, uh, Perez, I think, was second. If you looked at it on a per pitch, he's like third or fourth. Same, Essentially, same difference. And pitch blocking, we chart every ball that's in the dirt uh, and whether you blocked it or not uh, with a man on base or in a two-strike swinging situation. And he had the highest rate. It was him and Robinson Chirinos. Uh, Robinson Chirinos edged him out by like a thousandth of a point or something. So he had the highest rate when it came to that. And he played a lot. So he accumulated a lot of value that way. So he won on that front. And deservedly so. He had 29 defensive runs saved, which was one shy of the most for a catcher. And he was well ahead of Hedges too. Hedges, Real Mudo is interesting because Austin Hedges' skill 
is harder to pick up on visually, whereas JT Realmuto's skills, blocking pitches, and throwing out base runners at an extremely high rate is mm-hmm. very easy for you and I to pick up uh, right. watching him. Hedges' skill is much more subtle. He was by far the best pitch framer in baseball. It wasn't close. Uh, and what he does is his thing is he can get that pitch that's at the bottom of the strike zone or just below it, and he can catch it where he's bringing the glove down below the ball and he catches it on the way up so it looks a little bit better and it's in the strike zone and he gets that call. Austin Hitches was one of the worst offensive players in baseball this season and he caught, I think it's 93 games. They had a winning record when he caught. Their pitching Mm. numbers were way better when he caught and he was extremely valuable. I think he's the clear two, and then Real Muto's the three. Again, it'll be interesting to see, by the time people hear this, who won the gold glove uh, between the two of them, because it's a battle between kind of the older school with Real Muto and the newer school with Hedges. So you've talked to, I think, Austin Hedges, I think Nick Ahmed on your Sports Info Solutions podcast, and plenty of players and ex-players outside of the podcast itself. What's kind of the the general mindset you see more from the current players regarding these advanced dis- defensive stats, anything really beyond the basic numbers. What do you hear from them about how they react to those things? I was pleased that uh, one of our guests, I think it was Nick Ahmed, uh, came on and said the defensive run saved is like the best. So that, that was good <laughs> to hear. And uh, I think that was a, a thing for him where he felt like his work wasn't necessarily being valued at the same level uh, that other players are being valued. And they're looking Guys like him, guys like Austin Hedges are looking for ways to be valuable because that's what keeps them in the major leagues. Mm-hmm. Uh, so those players seem to be receptive to it. The younger players certainly seem to be uh, open-minded to it because it's, it's they're growing up on it now. Like the the I said, the eight-year-old who was reading the Bill James Baseball Abstract, that was all foreign stuff to everybody back then. But a 15-year-old mm-hmm. looking at that now as a player and looking at shifts. It's not that big a deal because a lot of people are doing that. A lot of people are studying launch angle and exit velocity and and things like that. So I think uh, you're seeing a shift to a more open-minded player and that someone like the Boons and the Glanvilles are going to become more of the norm in in terms of the people that we encounter. And I know that people make a big deal sometimes on, on some of the game broadcasts that the broadcasters don't seem like they're fully into it. That's a time thing. Over t- and also, yeah. that's a mainstream thing. That that that's not something that's going to change overnight. Uh, right. And I love when ESPN does this Statcast broadcast yep. because you get the alternative presentation, and it's completely different. And people, the people that watch it, love it. It's like they're right. their own little club at this point. It's it's uh, it's awesome. Yeah, they do a good job with that, and because then they have a player and a former player in Eduardo Perez, yep. and they're not nerding it up in the sense that a baseball fan, casual baseball fan, wouldn't be able to understand it. Like, you could watch it just as a fan and think, they're getting nerdy, but I at least understand what's going on. And that's that's key when you're able to do that. Yep, credit to Jason Benetti for being really yep. good at uh, guiding them through. For sure. All right, let's get into our playing favorites segment to wrap this up. We'll run through a number of favorites to get from you. So we'll start with, what is your favorite number and why? My favorite baseball number is 131. That is not necessarily 131. It is 131, as in January 31st. That is the birthday for 
Nolan Ryan, Ernie Banks, mm-hmm. Jackie Robinson, and Bob Ferguson. Who's Bob Ferguson? Bob Ferguson played in the earliest days of baseball, like in the mid-late 1800s. His nickname was Death to Flying Things because <laughs> he was really good at catching fly balls. Three Hall of Famers and one of the best nicknames we'll find in baseball. It's yep. a pretty good date. All right, who's your favorite player? My favorite baseball player of all time is a former Mets relief pitcher named Neil Allen, who pitched for the team from 1979 to 1983. Uh, I met him at a baseball card show, and apparently he had become my favorite player. I was wearing a T-shirt with his likeness on it. He looked at the shirt. He was in the middle of a pretty bad slump at the time, and he was very excited, and he was very nice to me in that 15 seconds or so. And I said, you know what? I'm going to be loyal to him for the rest of his uh, career, <laughs> which for the Mets lasted about two or three more weeks because he got traded for Keith Hernandez <laughs> right after that. But uh, I, I, a... I followed him all the way through. I followed him t- through his time as a successful pitching coach with the Rays uh, minor league teams and then the Twins. Uh, and I am, I, am the, I am probably the world's biggest fan of Neil Patrick Allen. If you're a player, you'd be nice to that one kid and you got a fan for life, huh? Yes, exactly. All right, you wrote a book called The Yankees Index, which picks numbers out, lots and lots of numbers in Yankees history and tells their stories. And I would recommend this. I am very much not a Yankees fan, like most baseball fans. But if you like baseball history, I would recommend people uh, check out the Yankees Index book. So what was your favorite number from doing all that research, all that work and writing the book? From eight months of looking things up and newspapers.com and baseball reference and all the many different things that I checked. Uh, it was a great experience to write a book. I definitely recommend it to aspiring writers. My favorite number was two. Uh, two was for slow Joe Doyle, who pitched mm-hmm. for the Yankees in the early part of the 20th century. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was not very good, but at the start of his career, he pitched a shutout in his first game. And he pitched a shutout in his second game. He's the only Yankee pitcher to throw a shutout in each of his first two starts. There's a funny story dating from his minor league days. I will tell it because I don't anticipate people buying a book. They were (laughs) looking for him when he came to bat uh, in the middle of the game. And they found him on a hammock fast asleep. (laughs) He was nice (laughs) and relaxed. Yes. Uh, Yep. And slow Joe was because he was very slow in his pitching motion to try to throw the hitters off balance. And given the uh, way pitchers are handled now, I'd say there's pretty much zero chance that anyone is going to yep. break that record, let alone It's an unbreakable. Yep. I think my favorite, if I remember one of them at least, was Willie Randolph had 1,000 walks and 1,000 double plays and was one of very few second basemen to do that. So that, that appeals to my round numberness and also my propensity to like second baseman because I grew up as a Frank White fan. Nice. Willie Randolph was extraordinarily nice on the phone. And I remember as I was talking to him and listening to his enthusiasm and his passion for things like that and his on-base percentage and how much more Mm -hmm. valuable he would be if he played today, uh, it struck me again that older people, older school people, that when they get introduced to something that's newer school by the components and the, hey, I can relate to this, that it opens their their eyes up a little bit. Yep. What's your favorite stat or note that you can just rattle off? We talked to Jeff Bennett a few weeks ago, and ESPN researchers, just researchers in general, tend to have something they can just rip off a whole long string of something. So what's yours? Uh, I can recite the last out of the World Series going back uh, 60-something years. 
uh, I made a little video about it that you can find on YouTube. If you were going to just do like, well, 1985 for you is Andy Vance like fly ball to right field. The Royals winning 11 to nothing over the Cardinals in game yep. seven. But then if you want to go before that, 84 is Tony Gwynn and 86 is Marty Barrett. Just to give a, a quick sample of, of if you work at ESPN, you kind of it's one of those things uh, that, that just kind of happens for you. Do you have a favorite final out? I would assume the Mets ones are at the top. Any, anything aside from those, maybe? 1926 World Series, because of the <laughs> unique way in which it ends. Mm. Um, the Yankees are trailing the Cardinals by a run in the bottom of the ninth. Man on first, two out. Lou Gehrig on deck. Bob Musel batting. And Babe Ruth decides that now is the time to try to steal second base. And he gets thrown out to end the World Series. <laughs> the, yeah. the funny thing is, if you read the newspapers about that, Nobody criticizes it. It's mm. it's so strange, but it's Babe Ruth, so he's he's kind of he gets a, somewhat of a pass on that one. So that I think that's my favorite. Can I do? By the way, I've, I've, in listening to your other shows, do I get to do the the favorite game that I attended? Oh yes, I skipped right over that one. So Mark, tell me what the <laughs> favorite game you've been to in person is. I have two, and I will I will try and do this quick. Uh, Nineteen ninety nine NLCS game five, Mets Braves, Robin Ventura grand slam single. My favorite mm-hmm. at bat from that game is Sean Dunstan. Uh, I think it was 10, 11, 12 pitches uh, battling Kevin McGlinchey. Finally got a base hit up the middle, and then wound up scoring the tying run. Mets uh, losing in the NLCS, but game five that was the most excited I've ever been to be at a game uh, from start to finish. I'm not typically loud at that game. I was very loud. Uh, the other one, this is to appeal to you, the 2007 New Mac Men's Basketball Final. What's the new yeah. Mac, people say? That's the Division Three league in which the team I used to broadcast for, the Coast Guard Academy, played. Coast Guard Academy men's basketball team was 2-10 and 10 in the regular season, but in an all-inclusive playoff, won its league, defeating a ranked first-place team to win. Uh, I did want to throw that one in because I, I wanted to pay a little tribute to them. Love the D3 stories. Always good for that. All right. Mark Simon, Senior Research Analyst at Sports Info Solutions, has been our guest here on Expected Value. Mark, thanks for joining the show. You're welcome. Thanks again to Mark Simon, Senior Research Analyst at Sports Info Solutions, for joining us here on Expected Value. You can follow Mark on Twitter at Mark A. Simon Says. Check out our show notes for links to the Fielding Bible Awards, Mark's writing for The Athletic, and much more. If you want to hear more about what Mark did as a researcher at ESPN, I encourage you to check out the conversation I had with Jeff Bennett, VP of ESPN's Stats and Information Group. That was about a month ago. I think it's episode 7 in your Expected Value feed. And since this talk with Mark went long, I'll keep the reaction short and share one notable thing that struck me while talking with him. That's really the ability to adapt on several levels, on a personal level. Mark did this when he decided to get ahead of the curve and learn about defensive metrics, and that led to Mark being one of the leaders in the field. On a more granular level, SIS has had defensive run save for 15 years, and now that more data is available, they're updating their models. I think it's a relatively straightforward thing and something almost everyone in sports, analytics, and even beyond can really apply. You know, stats, models, even your professional skill sets. Rarely should these be treated as final products. They can often be improved, maybe not immediately, maybe at some point down the road. Just keep asking questions, keep an eye on the future. 
A request to please subscribe, rate, and review the show wherever you get podcasts. We appreciate all the five-star reviews on Apple Podcasts so far. And please share the show on social media, word of mouth, and in the other ways. Next week, we'll have our first basketball guest, Spencer Anderson, the Indiana Pacers Director of Basketball Analytics. So stay tuned for that one. On behalf of all of us here at True Media Networks, I'm Paul Carr. Thanks again for listening to Expected Value, the podcast that goes inside the sports analytics world. We'll be right back.